Welcome to the Anchor Church Podcast. Each week, we'll bring you the teaching from our central campus. We hope it's an encouragement to you. Thanks for listening. You made it. Some of you were up 10 hours ago having fun, and here you are. I'm delighted to see you. My name is Susan. If we haven't had a chance to meet, I'd love the opportunity to do that. So I hope that that happens. I get to take us into the very first day of a brand new year, and that's exciting. Happy New Year to you. It's going to be a good one, right? We um, said that three years ago. In fact, a lot of churches and organizations and corporations leveraged the 2020 language to cast vision for the awesome year that was coming. And now, even that we can crack a smile for that says that we're a little bit on the healthier side. It's still kind of painful for many of us, isn't it? But I don't know about you, when we start a new series and it's at the top of the year and it's about when life isn't what it's supposed to be, it makes me a little bit on guard. Like, what are you telling me? Because we know that pain happens in life, doesn't it? It happens on a global level. We've all experienced that. But it also happens at a deeply personal level. And maybe that's you today. Maybe that's been your story for a long time. So we're going to have a conversation about that. There's a story that I remember well about a young father, a young husband with three kids. And he was a father who was a good man. And he was a chain breaker. His own dad had abandoned the family when he was just a little guy, preschool age. His father's father had done the same, but he would be a faithful dad. He would be a faithful husband. He would be a good dad and raise his kids. Even though he had questions about his faith and there were things that he doubted, he would raise his kids to honor God and lead his family in that. And even though he was raised without much, he would learn how to be a good breadwinner. And he would train himself. He would go to school and become a graphic designer. And in the city where he lived, not a small city, he would have some of the most prominent accounts throughout the city. And you could see his work on billboards and other places. And it was as a graphic designer that he sat down with the hospital administration of the largest hospital in town to talk with them about their annual report and the graphics he was developing for that. When out of the blue, suddenly, he fell off of his chair and onto the floor unresponsive. Out of the blue. Life didn't go like it was supposed to. But what a better place to have that happen than right in the hospital. So immediately he's surrounded by specialists. He's taken to the ICU. They're gathering around him. They do all the studies and they find that he's had a massive bleed in his brain from a weak vessel that burst. And that even simple functions like breathing were not possible for him without help. Well, this kicked into gear a lot of crisis mode of praying and vigils and the church that he went to supported him. And and I remember the the students in the student group were so sure that God was going to miraculously heal this man because he was a good man and they served a good God and they had faith and they had prayed and they were so expectant for that. And they were so excited to share with this man's children their hope for that, only to find out that within another 48 hours and with no hope of survival, that the life support would be removed and this man's body would finally die. It was painful. 
It was very painful for the, for the mom. How do you navigate a world on your own raising three kids? How do you provide for them? There was chaos. How do I look forward to a life alone? There was pain for his children. How do I go to school on Monday and face a bunch of teenagers who don't have a clue how to respond when life doesn't go like it's supposed to? Pain all around. There's questions. How do you navigate the reality that faith isn't a guarantee that, will, that things will turn out a certain way? How do you wrestle with the loss of a dad in the tender years of adolescence? I resist in most cases saying, I know how that must have felt, but I do know how that felt because this was my dad. And he was 45 and I was barely 15. And I remember wrestling it for the first time with things like these questions of how do we deal with this? And I remember struggling with God, can you be good and can you be sovereign and can you still allow pain to come into our lives that's disruptive, that shatters hopes and expectations? Could I trust God with that kind of pain? But this story this morning is not about me. It's about us. Each of us has our own variety of pain in our lives. And for some of you, I've met you in the lobby prior to the gathering or after the last gathering. It's happening now. It's live. And you're not quite sure what's the meaning of that pain. Well, we're going to look at a section of scripture today. We're looking at different sections throughout this series that's uh, in the book of James. And we're going to be looking at the first four verses of chapter one of James. Because James has something to tell us that hits the, where the rubber hits the road when we have pain in our life that's important for us to know. So let's read that together. It's going to be on the screen behind me, or you can pull it up on your Bible app or open up your Bible to James 1, verses 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish, it, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Well, a little bit of background. James here is the kid half-brother of the Messiah. Can you imagine feeling like you were a little bit less than when your older brother is Messiah? That's a little tricky sibling dynamics, isn't it? But we, t we learn from scripture that James was not a follower of Jesus during his ministry years. He was out. He was not one of his disciples. But we also learn that something happened in him that changed all of that. We don't know quite what it is, but scripture does tell us that he was one of the earliest people that the appearance of Jesus in his resurrected form was revealed to. And I just wonder if like it is for us today, when James encountered the resurrected Christ, that something had to change, because it's true for us today. And James became an influencer. He became a leader in the church at Jerusalem. He wrote to the Jewish Christians who were scattered. They'd been booted out by the Roman authorities out of their land. And they were themselves suffering and being persecuted. And James is writing to them. 
with encouragement, with instruction. And I love James. I'm pretty practical. Sometimes I have to go back on my emails and remember to put a greeting in there. And he, you know, it's like, oh, oh yeah, by the way, hi. James is the same. Like he says, hey, greetings, period. Let's cut to the chase. And he cuts to the chase with something that would not have been my first go-to line. And this is what he says. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. I remember being a young follower of Jesus and I was doing this scripture memory thing where I'd memorize scripture, pull my little card that it came, came with. This was the first one. I remember just pondering this passage and going, you've got to be kidding me. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. And I was just thinking like, I don't know if James is very emotionally mature or aware, or maybe he's just like got this martyr complex or some sort of a masochistic, masochistic bent of some sort. I don't know, but he's saying something that's paradoxical. And we have to wonder that maybe he's either off base, which could be, which I doubt, or he has something so counterintuitive to share with us that we have to pay attention. That what he has to share with us matters, it's important, and he puts it at the top of his letter. And he says this, it's important how you understand pain in your lives. It has something to say to you, it means something, and God wants you to know about it. The first thing that he tells us is that pain is inevitable. Pain is inevitable. There are myths that are surrounding pain for us, and we don't even recognize them as we tell ourselves these things. But one is that if we're good, we get, a, we get a pass, right? It's sort of like Santa Claus. If we're asleep and we're supposed to be asleep and he sees us when we're sleeping and he knows when we're awake, that somehow if we're good, it'll work out right for us. But also we tell ourselves, well, if we're not asleep when we're supposed to be asleep or awake, you know, all those things, that somehow we get cosmic coal in our stocking, right? That narrative takes a more subtle form that because I've done that thing, I'll never be right again. I'll never be on plan A. I'll be booted in the algorithm to plan B because God can't love me in the way that I want to be loved. Another myth is that we need to pursue pain, that it's on us, like, like pain is some sort of bleach for the dirty laundry of our lives to cleanse us, right? And if we pursue it and do enough of it, that finally we'll be clean, I remember a movie called The Mission. If you haven't seen it, you should. It's a mid-1980s thing. Don't worry, it's still good. It's not in black and white. Um, the, the, the main one of the main characters was played by Robert De Niro, and it was a man who had been a murderer, a slave trader, a kidnapper of this indigenous people group, men, women, and children in mid-18th century South America. And as he did that, he came to a point in his life where he had such remorse. He'd had an aha moment, a change of heart, and he set up for himself this penance plan. And it involved him carrying this heavy load, which included the symbols of his brutality, his armor and his sword, hundreds of pounds with this heavy rope, and he lashed it to himself and he traipsed across the Amazon jungle, up waterfalls, over rocks, sliding down, losing his load, getting it again, getting covered with mud, being famished, being exhausted, and finally, at the end of his journey through this territory where he had been so brutal, Brutal, he finally was able to release his real and metaphorical load. 
for some of us, it's never enough. Do you find yourself in that place? Another myth is that pain is something we're to muscle through. That if we don't or if we can't, we're inadequate and we're weak. Or that pain should be buried deep, out of sight and out of mind. And so we make up trite little sayings like, everything happens for a reason. Don't you love that? Have you been told that? Everything happens for a reason. Maybe in a moment of awkwardness, we've said that. It's not impossible, right? We don't know what to say. Kate Bowler, in her book, By That Name, of Everything Happens for a Reason, talks about her pain through her journey of cancer. And she says this, the only thing worse than saying this, everything happens for a reason, is, is pretending you know the reason. I've had hundreds of people tell me the reason for my cancer. Because of my sin, because of my unfaithfulness, because God is fair, because God is unfair, because of my aversion to Brussels sprouts. When I was a kid, um, my uh, mom was in a Sunday school class for adults at the large church that we went to, and the name of the class was the Happy Christians. And I remember even as a kid, I'd be like, really? I don't know if that's okay. Like, are they all happy all the time? And is that a good thing? And do I want to run into them at Target? I'm not sure. Like, what happens in that kind of a group when bad stuff happens? Like, who do you go to? Whose shoulder can you cry on? Is it even okay to cry? It made me wonder whether maybe that was a little part of the reason that my mom had such a hard time confiding in anyone when her oldest son, my brother, my older brother, was uh, in jail a few times or struggled with addiction, never got through that. Another myth is maybe we shouldn't have pain at all. That pain, if we have pain, it's because we are broken it's our fault. There's something wrong inherently with us. And that even though we do our best, we meet failure, we meet disappointment, our relationships are broken, our finances are in shambles, our career can't get off the ground. We have unfulfilled longings for love, for health, for a child. Those things aren't due to us because of who we are. We wonder if we'll make it through this week, let alone a life, if we're experiencing it this way. And that leads us to the most disturbing myth of all, is that God is either unable or unwilling to protect us from pain. We wrestle with these things. James has a different way of thinking, and that's why he starts off his letter with these words. He needs to reframe this for us. And he starts by saying, pain is when. It's not if. It's when. Whenever you encounter trials of many kinds, in fact, it's more than once. It's all the time, not all the time maybe, but it's frequently, it's repeated. That pain is normal. Our trials will come in various sorts, he says. Some will be external, our circumstances. Some will be internal, our addictions, our emotions, our loneliness in a packed room. Those things that are painful for us. Trials will come. They're part of our human experience. I love this quote from J.R.R. Tolkien in The Hobbit. He says this, It does not do to leave a live dragon out of your calculations if you live near him. <laughs> Pain is a live dragon. We need to know that we live near him. We need to factor it into our calculations. It does not do to do otherwise. We have to know our reality, he says. To be unaware of that is unwise, unrealistic, it's even dangerous. It sets our mind on the wrong way of thinking. 
In fact, our, uh, our expectation of happiness, of freedom from pain, comes not from scripture. It comes from culture, from philosophy. The enlightenment was part of that. Happiness and the pursuit thereof was a big part of that. We hear those words in our Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and they're endowed with certain unalienable rights. And among those are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was new language for them. Think about the smiles and the pictures from the mid-18th century, or not even then, the later parts, early 19, 1900s. There were no smiles. Part of that was exposure, but part of that is like there wasn't Instagram. We hadn't been trained to be so smiley on our profiles, right? James was writing about a deeper happiness. He was pointing to not shallow happiness, not the first kiss or the wedding day, not the stolen cookie dough or the gourmet meal. He's talking about a deep joy that he wants us to know about. Even Jesus taught about this kind of a joy. He says, happy are those who mourn. Happy are those who are poor. Happy are those when people persecute you and do mean things to you because you're a follower of mine. Rejoice because great is your reward in heaven. James wants us to know those things. And he says another thing about pain that's important for us to know. And that is that pain has the potential to shape us. The potential of pain to shape us in one of two directions. Martin Luther King said it this way, as my sufferings mounted, I soon realized that there were two ways in which I could respond to my situation. Either to react with bitterness or seek to transform the suffering into a creative force. I decided to follow the latter course. What's true for him is true for us. As Jesus followers, we get to embrace and receive pain that's purposeful that God allows us to endure or things can happen in us that we don't even notice are taking place. Pain has a hotline to our emotions and many times pain, if we allow it to, will hijack them and start to bring us on a downward spiral. Maybe your pain is physical Maybe you have a medical diagnosis that brings you daily pain and you see your body beginning to break down. It's not what you wanted it to be. The years ahead of you don't have the hope that they had for you when you were younger and it's not at all what was part of your script. Maybe your pain is emotional and the hopes and the dreams that you had for your life are not taking place and it feels like time is ticking. That pain then brings us to depression and anxiety, to anger, to bitterness, to resignation. But not only that, that pain and that bitterness and that anger and that anxiety feeds and fuels our pain and becomes the lens through which we look at life. And so there's this cycling of these things to, to, to the point where we can't seem to escape it the lens and the cycling, and then we just resign. We allow pain to become contagious. We give it to others, even without them asking. Or, on the flip side, sometimes we try to assume all the pain in the, ones, in the lives of the ones that we love. 
We don't want them to experience pain and not just mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. Those are good things. But we try to play God in those situations. And not only does it rob them of the fruit of a painful season, but it also robs us of who we're intended to be for them. We call that kind of thing codependency and enabling and enmeshment. And we, we do things like see a counselor or maybe we come to CR or celebrate recovery for that. An unhealthy posture toward pain can deform our very identity. We can tell ourselves that it works. God, Jesus works for everyone but me. I've tried that and it didn't work for me. Maybe you saw others in pain and you didn't see it working for them and so you signed off. James to these things cries out, no. There's a different way of looking at pain. Yes, you will experience, but it doesn't need to take you down. So in verses two through four of our first chapter of James, we see two phrases that I want to highlight. We see considerate pure joy, and we see a little minor word in there that's so important, because. There's a because in our pain. Why can we consider it all joy? Why can we, as he says in the original language, carefully weigh it, look back at what's happened, consider it, think about it, reflect, take some time. Do this now, he says. Don't waste time because what I'm telling you is important. Check it off your list, weigh it carefully. Pure joy is available to you. Not just like most of it sucked, but there was this little glimmer of hope in the thing. Not in the pain itself, but in what it does produce because there's a because. Pain is not random, he wants us to know. Pain is not determined by fate, some impersonal force that has it out for us. Pain is not even based on us. Yes, we pay the consequences for the things that we do that are not so smart. But in the end of the day, it's too simplistic to think that we have created all of our situation. We will have pain. The purposefulness of because. Pain brings us growth that doesn't happen apart from us, apart from it. Pain helps us navigate life's pitfalls with as little trauma as possible. There was an orthopedic surgeon by the name of Paul Brand um, who I admire. He spent his life bringing his surgical skills to India to among people who had suffered the disfiguring effects of leprosy. Because what leprosy does is it makes you lose your sensation in your fingertips, in your hands, in your toes, in your nose, in your ears, different places in your body. And so without even knowing it, you have now traumatized, opened up the skin on your fingertips or on your toes or on your feet, and you keep going like nothing has happened. And so infection sets in and amputation is necessary. And you become gnarled and disfigured and unsightly and outcast. And so he did that, and one of the things he lamented is, if only they had pain sensors. If only they did, because without pain, you can't avoid that kind of injury. While we resist pain with all we have, Dr. Brand and James is saying that without it, we're prone to even greater loss. Without it, we miss out on what God is inviting us to. Because here's the thing, that God in his mercy allows us in this broken world to have pain 
so that he can speak to us in a way that we're willing to hear. Now, maybe that hits you in a place where you're really tender right now, and I understand that. Maybe that's not a good applicable word for you at this point. God's tenderness, his presence is with you. He's not going to put you into a situation where you can't bear it. He gives you his spirit so that you can be strengthened. But he does speak to us in our pain. C.S. Lewis says it this way, we can ignore pleasure, but pain insists on being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pain. It's his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. The question is, will we listen? Can we trust him in our pain? He wants us to know that there's promises available to us if we are willing to listen and to trust him in the pain that's part of our lives. I want us to look again at verses two through four. Here's the rest of that because. Because you know. This is an experiential knowing that when we listen and we allow God's pain to do work in us, he gives us an experiential knowing that there's hope in that. The testing of your faith, says James, produces perseverance. The testing is not a malicious, spiteful pop quiz given by a teacher who wants the class curve to be wrecked for the semester. It's testing for our good. It's testing to strengthen us, to allow us to bear up under a heavy load. In other words, that word persevere, that's what that means, to bear up, because he knows that we're going to need to do that. It doesn't come out of nowhere, that ability to bear up under a heavy load. It's endurance. One scholar says it this way, Endurance is the steadfastness which carries on until it gets there in the end. We need that. It's like purifying metal. The heat turns up and the impurities rise to the surface. Impurities that cheapen it, that make it less valuable, that make it less strong, that make it less desirable. That even out of our deepest pain, God desires and he miraculously weaves things together that make us more beautiful, that make us more valuable, that make us more useful, more meaningful to ourselves and to him. When we experience that, our trust in him grows and that translates into joy. That's what we can be joyful for. In my own life, um, I had a period where I was so thankful for God's faithfulness in my life. And I was pretty excited about him. And I remember um, also knowing that I needed to grow. And so I said this prayer and it went like this, Lord, whatever it takes, make me wholly yours. I dare you. <laughs> and so I prayed that and nothing happened except for a couple months in, my world began to unravel. And things and people that I began to count on, places that I've invested a lot of energy and time in and had a lot of hope for just began to wither away. And it was confusing and it was painful and it was hurtful and it was hard. And it was such a gift that God allowed a few people in my life to come into my life and sit with me and listen to me in the pain and not give too much advice, but at the right time to help reframe it for me and to point to the valuable work that God was doing in my soul. One of those people was my counselor, and he said this. He said, Susan, 
you're in seminary, but the work that you're doing right now is going to far exceed in value any seminary class that you take. And I have to tell you that was true. It has been true. And as I sit across from many of you in your times of pain, it's hard for me to not get a little bit excited as I'm hearing what God is doing in your life because I know that beyond that pain, there is hope and there is joy that you won't have without it. And so I want to listen and walk with you. We want to listen and walk with you. In fact, Anchor has set up a special email address called Anchor Cares. It's anchorcares at anchortacoma.org. Jot it down if you're inclined. Where you can email confidentially any concern that you have about your well-being walking through pain. Now or in the future. We want to resource you. We want to come alongside you. We want to pray for you. We want to listen to you. We want to be with you in that pain. We don't want you to get stuck. I hope you'll take advantage of that. Here's the principle that pain becomes dim next to God's presence with you in it. Pain becomes dim next to God's presence with you in it. Can we then let perseverance finish its work? I love that the phrase is put that way. Can we give permission to let perseverance finish its work? God wants to lead us to maturity. It's not boring, grown-up, have-no-fun maturity. It's completeness. It's joy in all circumstances. It's the kind of peace and settledness that you see in people who've been through it. And it draws you to them. Some of you are in this room, and I'm drawn to you because I see this maturity that you have. I'm going to invite the band up. God uses pain in a broken world to accomplish something that won't be accomplished without it. Most important of all, God didn't remove himself from the prospect of pain either. That Jesus, born an infant, laid in a manger, was a man of sorrow, scripture says. He was acquainted with grief. He took up our pain and he bore our suffering as he hung on a cross and allowed his blood to be shed for you and me. He wants to carry our pain. He's not unfamiliar with pain. He's not an armchair quarterback that's asking you to endure something that he himself hasn't fully endured. So I hope that's an encouragement to you as we head into this, the next weeks of this series that if you are finding yourself in a season of pain, which many of you will in a variety of ways, ask God what he has for you in that. Invite him into the conversation. Don't try to wiggle away too quickly. There may be invitation for you in that. Would you invite others in? We hope that this is a new season for all of us as we invite God to do all of the work that he wants to do in us. We're gonna move into a time of communion. There are people at the prayer stations that are ready to pray with you. Maybe this will be the first week that you have the courage to go and ask for help, to ask for prayer. We'd be honored to pray for you. We hope that um, you'll take advantage of that.